Hi, I'm Adrian Lee, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Here's a staggering gap. Indigenous children make up about 7% of all kids under 14 in Canada, but they represent more than half of all children in the country's foster care system. And according to the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, many of those children aren't getting the same level of federal funding as others in the welfare system. They found that Canada's actions led to, quote, trauma and harm to the highest degree, causing pain and suffering. The tribunal made that decision in 2016, nine years after a human rights complaint was first filed. The federal government was told to pay out potentially billions of dollars to Indigenous people affected by the foster care system. But to this day, the government is still fighting that order. What was clear in this case is that this was the worst case uh, scenario, as the tribunal described it, of discrimination. In fact, the government agrees that its non-compliance with that 2016 decision is linked to the deaths of at least three children. So the harms here are serious. That's Cindy Blackstock. She's been at the heart of this 14-year fight as the executive director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society, which is one of the organizations that launched that human rights complaint. She's also a professor at the School of Social Work at McGill University and a member of the Gixan First Nation. She joins us today to talk about the latest development in this case. That on Friday, the Trudeau government announced it would appeal a part of the federal court's decision around what exactly Ottawa owes Indigenous families. She'll tell us about what happened and where the fight goes from here. This is The Decibel. Thanks for joining us today, Cindy. My pleasure. Glad to be here. So we're speaking to you a few days after the Canadian government announced that it would appeal a part of the federal court's ruling on Indigenous child welfare. How do you feel? I feel disappointed. I mean, Adrian, this litigation has gone on for 15 years nearly now. And really what is at the central question to be answered by this lawsuit is really about ending inequitable public services for First Nations kids and their families to give them a fair chance to grow up safely in their families and be proud of who they are and be healthy. That's really what it's about. And I think that that's the thing that shocks me the most is that we even had to litigate to get this. Um, we won the case. The kids won the case in 2016. And I remember the government coming out and saying, we accept the ruling, you know, it's uh, we're going to do the right thing. And then they didn't do the right thing. And we've actually had uh, 20 non-compliance orders and procedural orders from the tribunal itself. Um, we've been to federal court now three times. The government has lost all three times. And uh, now they filed this appeal on compensating the victims of that discrimination into the federal court of appeal. Can you walk us through what it is that they agree with out of the announcement on Friday and what do they continue to disagree with? Right. Okay. So one of the good pieces of news is there were two decisions the federal court made. And one was about ensuring that all First Nations children who are recognized by their nations get help under what's called Jordan's Principle, which is really to make sure First Nations kids can get the health, education and social supports that they need free of discrimination. Now, the federal government had challenged that ruling, but they decided not to appeal uh, when the federal court said all First Nations kids recognized by their nations get help. So that's good news. Those families don't have to worry about losing those much needed supports. 
Um, in terms of uh, where they agree, a new thing that they've said is that they uh, are agreeing that the discrimination is ongoing. Up until this point, they have always said, oh, dark chapter, bad things in the past, but haven't owned that it's still going on. Um, they still have some view that the federal court was wrong in compensating uh, these victims of discrimination under the Canadian Human Rights Act. It can be up to $40,000 per victim. And just to give your listeners a sense, this is for like separating families because they were given less services because of their race. They were put in a situation where their, their kids were far more likely to be taken away. $40,000 isn't a lot of money for that. Or for some cases, kids dying. The federal government has these unknown, I'm really not clear what their problem is with their legal decision. And they say they want to deal with it in a class action. But you know what? When you've done wrong, you don't get to choose your penalty. That's the way it works in Canadian law. And so what's happening now, just to be clear, is the, a settlement process between uh, uh, your organizations and the federal government? Right. So what the federal government has said is, uh, OK, well, let's go into some detailed negotiations and see if we can land a deal to end this discrimination and deal with the compensation before Christmas. Um, I have been in these talking circles before and they haven't really got us very far. Uh, but I think this is worth one last kick at the can for kids. And then uh, then that's it for me. I'm done. Um, because the only real progress that we've seen so far has been really through litigation. But in fairness to the kids, if we can reach an agreement, it'll bring justice sooner. So that's why I'm going in there. Um, but I've also made clear that the orders are the orders. And when it comes to the compensation stuff, Adrian, this money isn't mine. It belongs to the victims. And the good news about the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal award of that the federal court upheld is no lawyers get any money. No one else gets any money other than the victims. And that's really what you want to see. So I just want to see those monies go out to the people that were so hurt by this discrimination and so that they can get a small measure of justice for the harms that they experienced. So has that process begun, that settlement process? Yeah, there's just been some preliminary discussions today. And uh, the good news is we have First Nation Solutions ready to plug and play. That's been the history of this whole case. And I think something that uh, Canadians need to understand is we're not just criticizing the government. We've actually worked with experts and the government itself to come up with solutions so that these this is generation of kids don't have to recover from their childhoods. Where things have fallen down is the government either doesn't want to accept responsibility or doesn't want to implement the solutions that are evidence-based and they want to call the shots. And, and that's what we need to move away from. In your initial complaint, the Caring Society and the Assembly of First Nations alleged that child welfare services for First Nation children and families on reserve were underfunded and discriminatory. But what exactly was the gap between on-reserve and off-reserve funding for these agencies? If you were um, on-reserve, you only got 70 cents uh, on the dollar for child welfare services. But on top of that, you had all that multi-generational trauma from residential schools. I'll give you a real-life example. So um, I lived in, uh, in, worked in child protection in North Vancouver for about nine years. And then I literally crossed the street to work with the Squamish First Nation. And there's a young boy there that needs a standing frame. He has cerebral palsy. His standing frame is so old that it's being held together with duct tape. Now, all I would have to do on the other side of the street is get a healthcare professional to say what this young boy needed. And then 
the government would pay for it. But because this kid was First Nations and on reserve, where the federal government funds those public services, they said, oh, no, he's got to wait because we only give one piece of medical equipment every five years and he just got a wheelchair three years ago. That's kind of the stuff that every day I would see. There was almost no services, Adrian, to keep families together. So all of the family support services, like we see domestic violence shelters, uh, parenting programs off reserve, that stuff wasn't available on reserve. And so it's no wonder that families couldn't recover from multi-generational trauma. And these kids were ending up in foster care because their families were deprived of basic services everyone else gets. This is still a problem. This is this inequitable funding, federal funding, is why we have First Nations who are still dreaming about finally getting a clean glass of water out of the tap, right? It's cross-cutting across all these services. That gap continues, persists to this day. Yeah, it's closed a bit because of those 20 non-compliance orders, but it's still there. And keep in mind that we're dealing with uh, child welfare services and other children's services. Let's cost out all of these inequalities, everything from, you know, water, sanitation systems, housing, all these things that First Nations get less of. And then let's cost it out and create a holistic plan to remedy the discrimination across the board so that we're not dealing with it one drop at a time and one program by a time. And we're not here another 150 years later where First Nations kids are still trying to get what every other kid gets as a matter of course. And what does the alternative look like? You know, I think we can look back and safely yeah. say this this didn't work, but what does the future hold then? Ah, see, that's where the solutions come in. And we've been working with First Nations and First Nations agencies. And, uh, you know, Kevin Page, the former parliamentary budget officer, where he's got this amazing uh, institute here at University of Ottawa. And really, we're asking ourselves, I think, the right question, which is not how to fund child welfare or how to fund, say, education services for kids. We're asking ourselves this question, what would it take for First Nations children to thrive? And so we've worked with experts to create outcomes for children and families, and then drive the money towards those outcomes. And when the government says, oh, it costs us too much money, I always say to them, you know, look at the research, the best investment you can make is in a kid. For every dollar you spend in children, you save about $18 downstream. But the reverse is also true. If you cheap out on a kid, you're going to pay $18 in expenses later on. So do the right thing. It just makes sense. And then what does the government's continued attempts to fight the tribunal's ruling say to you? It says uh, that uh, they're acting in ways that are colonial. I mean, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action are the survivor's work plan for the country. In this particular case we're talking about, it, it takes aim at the number one call to action, which is addressing the child welfare situation, and Jordan's principle is number three. So they're taking aim at the top three things that the residential school survivors wanted done. And why did they want those things done? because they had been through such horrors themselves. They told their truth so their grandkids wouldn't have to go through it. We can't apologize for what's happening in the past while we're perpetrating it in the present, right? The harm has to stop. Let's talk a bit about the compensation specifically that's being argued okay. over. The government has been ordered to pay potentially billions of dollars 
Who's able to get compensation and how much as of right now? Right. So this is a compensation under the Canadian Human Rights uh, Act. And um, this is a federal act of parliament that basically says um, if you discriminate against somebody on the basis of race, gender, whatever, um, you can be ordered to pay up to $40,000 in compensation. So um, what was clear in this case is that this was the worst case uh, scenario, as the tribunal described it, of discrimination. In fact, the government agrees that its non-compliance with that 2016 decision is linked to the deaths of at least three children. So the harms here are serious. So uh, what the tribunal noted in the evidence is that Canada knew better, could have done better, and just didn't do it. So they ordered them to pay $40,000 to each of the victims. Now, the reason the number is so high is because they discriminated and hurt against so many people. And I always tell the Canadian public, you need to think about it this way. Canada behaved its way into this multi-billion dollar compensation problem. Because had it implemented those solutions under the Chrétien government, or in 2005, I think under Pearl Martin, or even when we filed this complaint, immediately, if they would have fixed it, there would have been no victims to compensate because they would have done the right thing. But because they fought it tooth and nail on these legal technicalities, the same ones that we saw relied upon for Friday's appeal, and because they didn't uh, take responsibility for implementing legal orders, that amount has increased. And if you think about it for yourself, like, is $40,000 really a lot if you've lost your childhood and grew up away from your family when you could have grown up at home? Or what about these young people who lost their lives? And, and so what is then the meaning of this money? I mean, for some, it might feel like too little. For others, it might feel yeah. like this is, this is an impactful amount of money. We talked to youth in care, First Nations youth in care, and formerly in care as part of this process. And for some of them, they were saying, you know, $40,000 would mean for the first time I could rent an apartment in a safe neighborhood where I don't have to be scared. Or $40,000 could mean that I get to go to trade school, become an electrician or uh, be able to buy a car so I can get to work. Um, we talked to a mom who actually lost one of her uh, children because Canada denied that child services. And what she wants to do is develop a, a park, a play park for children with disabilities uh, to honor her son, but to provide a safe place for other children with disabilities to come with their families. Uh, these are the things that people want to use this money for. And uh, they say that, you know, this $40,000, yeah, is it going to compensate me for what I lost? No. But it would help me make my life a little bit better. And, you know, on a strictly practical level, a compensation that is potentially as big as this will ultimately have to be paid for by Canadian taxpayers. So what would you say to those who might blanch at this? I would say then stop the government from doing this again, right? I mean, that's where the compensation comes in is when you hurt people. Right. And it, this isn't just like a claim. This has been tested in over 30 different legal rulings. Right. So this isn't just coming out of nowhere. We've been up as high as a federal court of appeal on this case. And Canada loses all the time when the facts get daylight. Job number one is to stop the discrimination. And job number two is to make sure there's never another generation of First Nations, Métis or Inuit kids who have to go get harmed by Canada. Then job number three is to make sure that we do the reparations because we owe it to these kids. Mm -hmm. And and you have 
really witnessed the entire swath of this this file for for the last 14 15 years are we despite the the sort of slowness of the change do you see that we're on the right path to changing outcomes for first nations children yeah absolutely like the public awareness is key and i again i just want to thank the survivors of residential schools and also the families of murdered and missing indigenous women and girls because I think those truths have piled up on the Canadian consciousness, along with the evidence of the children in the unmarked graves, in a way that Canadians could not turn away as easily as they did before. Before, when they would hear these, these truths, it was like, oh, that can't be happening in Canada. And it would create almost this reflex. We're much better than any other part in the world, right? But now people, they'll hold their attention a bit longer and say, Maybe I need to learn more about this because even in the off chance this is happening, this is really wrong. And there's something that I can do about it as a member of the public. I can call my MP. I can tell them I'm not voting for you unless you do the right thing here. I can tell the prime minister that if they want another term, it's based on them doing the right thing for this. So, and so I think that that has been the real changing point. The key is, can we sustain it? Can we keep our attention? Can we look at these kids and keep watching the government to make sure it does the right thing for as long as it takes? Well, thanks so much for joining us, Cindy. Hey, thanks for having me, Adrian. That's it for today. I'm Adrian Lee. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. Michal Stein edited this episode. David Crosby is our audio editor. Kasia Mikhailovich is our senior producer. Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks to Cindy Blackstock. She's the executive director of The Caring Society, and she's on Twitter at CBlackST. Email us at thedecibel at globeandmail.com. If you want to reach me, I'm on Twitter at Adrian K. Lee. And most importantly, wherever you listen to podcasts, please follow us. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.